On this episode of Office Hours, John Hennessy, Paul Rabel, Dr. Eric George, Apollo Ono, Mike Kralipsky, Derek Moneyberg. If you want to make big changes, you have to be willing to take risks. He's motivated. He's inspirational. I see the future in NFTs. I see the future in technology. Don't worry about get rich quick, but do worry about get rich. As some athletes would say, you know, train as if you are dead broke. Legend, legend, legend. Mind blown. David Meltzer hosts... Office Hours. We have some amazing guests coming up. But first, let me introduce you to our host, David Meltzer. Growing up with a single mother who raised six kids, David was driven to be rich so he could take care of his mom and buy her a house and a car. After graduating law school, he became a multimillionaire and fulfilled that dream, only to lose that house, car, and over $100 million due to bankruptcy. Thanks to his resilience, David has been able to make it all back and more, evolving into one of the world's top serial entrepreneurs and esports investors. Today, he's on a mission to empower over 1 billion people to be happy, providing as much value as possible in everything he does. I'm David Meltzer, and look who's joined me, my friend Jason Waller, the CEO of Powerhome Solar and the True Underdog podcast. Welcome back, my friend. Bam. And of course, Natalena, an incredible CEO and founder of Rise Up For You, the Rise Up reunion, as I call it. She is incredible, helping everyone reach their potential. You got to just believe in Nada, because when she asks a question, you're just on your tiptoes, listening for the answers. And we got some great guests to bring the best out of, which makes you an incredible person. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, David. And of course, Mike Mamola, founding partner at Media Abundance, entrepreneur, influencer, and an incredible speaker. Welcome back, my friend. Thank you, Dave. Awesome. Well, we have a treat. This is uh, one of my mentors, someone that I've studied for years. Our first guest is John Hennessy, chairman of Alphabet Inc., professor at the Stanford School of Engineering and author. John, welcome to Office Hours. Delighted to be here, David, with such a great audience, too, and a great guest set of guests. John, I'm going to start with your scholar program at Stanford as a professor. It's the Knight Hennessy Scholar. Now, I don't know if you know this about me, but I have a little chip on my shoulder. I have five <laughs> siblings, all who got into the Ivy Leagues. Two of them turned down Stanford, I think, just to piss me off, to be honest. They wanted to completely embarrass me because I got rejected twice from Stanford, one undergrad and once for law school. Um, so my first question is, can you write me a recommendation for the scholarship? <laughs> I can, but you're no longer eligible, David. I hate to tell you. <laughs> well, I, and to that point, I'd really love for you to tell me who is eligible and how can they apply? We created it because we were looking for young people who really wanted to become leaders in all walks of life, whether it's in the corporate world or the nonprofit world or in government. And certainly we know we need people who are going to do a better job of leading our institutions and our organizations going forward. So we're trying to find really talented, high achieving people from around the world in all, all graduate programs at Stanford, 120 different graduate programs. And they're eligible if they're within six years of having finished their bachelor's degree. Uh, and we've assembled, a, we're in our fourth cohort, uh, just came in. It's incredible 
group. Uh, it actually has more women than men in it. So we've been able to attract really talented women in science and engineering, as well as in uh, fields where they're usually well represented. So John, with with you being the uh, chairman of Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google getting everything started, why don't you talk about your belief and vision when Google was going, from where it started to where it's at now, where do you think it's going in the next five to 10 years? When we started early on, Larry and Sergey had this notion of organizing the world's information and making it accessible and useful to people. And I think that's still the core driving mission. The big change that's occurred in the last five, six, seven, eight years has been the rise of artificial intelligence and our ability to build systems which are just much more sophisticated. You can see it now whether, you know, you can talk to your devices, they can understand, you can do a, you can do a search by voice rather than online. That technology is continuing to improve and get better and better and better. And that allows us to uh, help people more and provide provide new tools to really integrate them. John, I really love what you're doing with the Scholar Program, building future leaders for a better world, a better workplace. I'm always curious, what are your thoughts on soft skills for these leaders? Well, that's a great question because soft skills is what we're often trying to build and add. Every first year scholar, the first thing they take is a, is a course we call storytelling that really gets them comfortable getting up and talking in front of an audience, sometimes with a prompt that they've gotten two minutes before, but then by the end of the first year, getting up and giving a compelling TED-style talk. And we're really trying to help them uh, educate themselves. We're also trying to teach collaboration. One of the things that's happened in our world is we get too siloed. And if you really want to solve some of the bigger problems and really lead, you've got to work across those silos. You've got to be able to, a lawyer has to be able to work with an engineer, has to be able to work with a physician. So we've got to build that. And we do that by having the scholars work together on collaborative projects. John, congratulations on, the, on all of that. It's incredibly remarkable what you've been able to achieve with that. So thank you from, from everyone. With regard to everything that you're doing, uh, I found it really interesting, and I'd like to, to ask you about calculated risks and what, how you see that in, in your role. Because I remember you saying that when, when you bought uh, YouTube for billions of dollars, it wasn't necessarily showing any revenue, wasn't on track necessarily to do it, but you did it. And it was important, and it ended up working out really, really well. So what's the importance, and how do you balance that taking a calculated risk so that it pays off versus you know taking a risk that might not? Is What's the, what's the determinative factors? First of all, no risk, no reward. If you want to make big changes, you have to be willing to take risk. And then you've got to just assess it. And sometimes it does come down to a gut reaction. In the case of YouTube, the line that stood in my mind was, video is to the next generation what email was to your generation. And that just, I, when somebody said that, it clicked for me. And, and you know, the team, the team then said, Here's how we'll monetize. This is going to take time. It's not going to be easy. It's a new medium. It's different than, than search on the web. But we're going to have to figure out how to do it, but we think we can do it. When Alan Eustace, who was then vice president of engineering, came in and said, we need to be an AI first company. AI needs to be the core technology we are deeply investing in because it's crucial to the future of the company and what we want to do. And you hear something like that and you have enough knowledge about the field that you say, yes, this is a leap I really should take. A lot of people, I've been through two different great transitions in my life where I was able to accumulate, not John Hennessy wealth, but, but <laughs> enough wealth that I don't have to work ever again. 
Uh, and in my 30s, I decided I didn't want to work again, and it was the worst decision of my life. And now I'm 53 years old. I have never been more active in my life at 53, with four children, a happy wife, which everyone knows takes a lot of activity, uh, but even more, just <laughs> all the different ventures that I'm involved with. When I look at you, you know, th there's a lot that you've done, uh, but it seems to me, and maybe I'm wrong, that you're more active today than even 10 years ago. And so I'd love for you to share what it is that inspires you to stay so active when the purpose or the, you know, the passion or the profit for a lot of people when they reach such levels uh, feel as if they've made it and there's nothing else to do. When I was stepping down as Stanford's president um, in, in 2015, and then I stepped, actually stepped out of the office in 2016, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was thinking, you know, maybe I'll go on another corporate board, maybe another nonprofit board and I'll spend more time playing golf or gardening or doing something else. And I got some really terrific advice. Somebody said to me, you're not gonna be happy doing that, dabbling here and there. You have to have one big thing you're really working on that's really gonna fulfill you and you feel really excited and passionate about. And that was the right advice. And that's, uh, after that, I started thinking about what became Knight Hennessy Scholars and going to my friend, Phil Knight, uh, to see if he would finance it for us. So that was a that was a, a kind of turning point for me. And I think lots of people do this. They reinvent themselves at some point. Or you, you can be the Warren Buffett too. You can keep doing the same thing, do it really well and do it in a with with energy and excitement. But for lots of us, reinventing ourselves and saying, hey, we're gonna live another 40 years. Let's keep going and do something else useful with that time. John Hennessy, Chairman of Alphabet, of course, professor at Stanford School of Engineering and an author, extraordinary author uh, in the Hennessy Knight uh, Scholars Program. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, John. John. Thank you so much. Good to Thanks, see everyone. You. Right, Thank you. Legend, legend, legend. <sighs> Yeah, goosebumps on that one. I mean, he took a chance on YouTube, which another thing that nobody would believe. I never heard it said that way. The, the generation right now of video is our generation of email. I've never heard it said that way. It makes complete sense. Yeah. You know, I love that he just emphasized collaboration. You know, anything great that's big, Google, of course, Alphabet, it's all collaboration. It never comes from just one person. So really emphasizing that is key. And especially as he's training these new leaders in the scholar program, emphasizing that early is critical. Next up, we've got Paul Rabel, pro lacrosse player and co-founder of the Premier Lacrosse League. Paul Rabel, welcome to Office Hours. Dave, thanks for having me. What I love about you, Paul, is that you took a sport that wasn't as well known to bring Premier Lacrosse into the forefront in, as a brand. You used the NBA strategy. You became a brand yourself. You had killer trick shots. I started becoming aware of you because of these you know, videos that were incredible. And I wasn't really you know, a huge lacrosse fan, and I became one. Right. And you know, I'm down in San Diego watching the PLL, and what you have built as a business is based off of a personal brand. You know, how have you taken your brand, and why did you decide to utilize your personal brand to build such a big brand above you that now so many people can enjoy. I started playing professionally in 2008 when I graduated from Johns Hopkins and Facebook launched fan pages. YouTube was putting out cat videos. This is pre-Instagram, Twitter, and uh, lacrosse wasn't having any linear coverage. But I was on uh, Facebook creating a fan page and I picked up 50,000 fans and I started having this dialogue that uh, was new to talent across the board, athletes, entertainers. And we started understanding that 
um, are stories that were previously subject to coverage by major media conglomerates if got out there to an audience that really just had a mobile device, that there was some business to be had. And I never thought that I would start a professional lacrosse league. There was one at the time. Pro lacrosse wasn't working, but was introduced at the time was new media and technology and ability to access niche fans across the world. And fast forward 10 years when Mike and I started the PLL, it was to essentially build the next version of the UFC, which took a sport that had been around in MMA and professionalized it. And we're taking a sport that had been around in lacrosse and professionalizing it, we're doing it through new media like social. As mentioned earlier, it's still a sport that people are getting used to, specifically on, on the West Coast, you know, in the United States. So I'm curious, what's yeah. the future of lacrosse? Where do you think it's going? Is it ever gonna be, you know, have that World Cup or the NFL? What does that look like? Lacrosse used to be an Olympic sport in 1904, 1908, and then it was a demonstration sport in the 40s. We have since, in, beginning in 2018, and then just got approval a couple of months ago, first provisional recognition, now full membership recognition by the IOC. I think we'll be back in the Olympics in LA 2028. We have world championships where 70 countries play every four years. So similar to a World Cup, different than soccer in the Olympics. Having both is, is really important. Uh, we see the college game continue to grow more on the women's side than the men's. So you're seeing more women's programs start up at the Division One, Two, II, and Three level. And then our job at the professional level is like top-down trickle effect where we can introduce brands and networks like our partner at NBC to bring more awareness and introduce casual sports fans. There's a hundred million of them in the U.S. alone to this game and really begin to kind of expedite that learning curve for people who may not have seen the sport before. Think about hockey or the NHL in the 90s. For our viewers that aren't familiar with lacrosse, because there still are some out there, what do you love most about the game? What gets you excited that you think would get new viewers excited? And how are you using technology? You gave us a little bit of an idea, but how are you using it specifically to get that engagement, that fan interaction? Are you reaching out? Are you having the players reach out so that there is a sense of community, community that's built among uh, the lacrosse players in the league? It is a highly artisan game, highly intricate. So you have the team sport component, which I love in contact and speed and agility. Um, and you know, 10 on one side going against 10 on the other with the individual individual notion or individuality and and uh, call it stylistic component in lacrosse where we string our own sticks and the challenge though much like hockey is when you have a handball sport it's really difficult to broadcast produce and distribute such that non-lacrosse people know how challenging a lot of these moves are so what we've done on the innovation side with nbc is take a on average three to four camera broadcast what has been in lacrosse and make it 10 to 12 mm -hmm. and then lower the game cams on field capture slow-mo highlights uh introduce live mics through audio in our players helmets so the talent in the booth goes directly down to the field we take more risks because we're a single entity league and we're newer uh, but tapping into that new tech to bring the life of the broadcast is a big piece of sort of educating people on how the game but is played but also amplifying those highlight moments you brought up the ufc and I believe that a lot of people that don't understand lacrosse and that don't follow PLL right now, do you think in your near future you're going to have to have some of that charismatic character type thing? Because Dana White was smart that it wasn't just about the fighting. It was about building a character people will follow, right? That's what sells, like the WWE type style 
uh, characters that you need. Do you see that in your future where you're going to have to really start building individual brands of character to help push the league further? What they did uh, with, a, with a similar challenge, it was a highly tactical sport. It was mostly on the map. People were used to boxing where it was just like fist to head, fist to head. Uh, but what Dana White will say is like universal language in a fight is one person's going to end on the on the mat and one person's going to end standing. So you don't have to educate too much, but they did have a challenge with all the grappling and mixed martial arts that an American audience wasn't used to. They launched Ultimate Fighter, which did what two things. One, it identified their stars and built personalities around them as they were coaches for the next athletes. But two, through that star acclamation, we were now learning about grapple holds and, you know, choke holds and how these uh, fighters approach the UFC on the mat. But building stars is strategic, but it's also catching lightning in a bottle. Like David Stern got Michael Jordan. Dana White got Conor McGregor. Like, you know, I hope we have one of those athletes that come. We're going to work our asses off to build brands around the ones we have, which are really interesting. Their stories are unique. But to have an athlete like Conor or MJ come during different eras, like, that that type of person is is really unique. I know. I bet on the jockey. This is a hell of a jockey, Paul Rabel, pro lacrosse player, one of the best, co-founder of the Premier Lacrosse League, PLL. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, everyone. I love that guy. That's yeah. all I gotta say. He has so much charisma, so much intelligence, and so much drive. I really agree with what you said about the brand. The personal brand is so important, and mm -hmm. being able. I mean, if you think about every industry right now in sports you always associate it with the person. And I think that's really gonna be critical. So I'm excited to see where it's gonna be in a few years. Yeah, I mean, think of like racing, NASCAR, you know, yeah. Earnhardt and all them really put it on the map because they were so flamboyant, there were issues, they're throwing the fingers up and throwing helmets at each other, right? It's, and almost every sport has had that. And that's what they need. It, it's almost as important as the skill set. You've got to have a mm -hmm. character you can build around, a brand that you can build around that people get excited. And sometimes that comes with drama. It comes with, you know, issues. But that's worth it if that's what UFC's done. I mean, mm -hmm. Conor McGregor isn't the, the best stand-up icon for MMA. I mean, sometimes he's not a good guy, right? But people like that. Our next guest is Dr. Eric George. Renowned hand surgeon and founder and CEO of ERG Enterprises. Dr. Eric George, my dear friend, an incredible hand surgeon, always one of the best doctors in the world, ranked everywhere, serial entrepreneur, venture capitalist, founder of the Hand Center of Louisiana and ERG Enterprises. This guy does it all, but with a resume like that during COVID, he Instagram live me in the front lines, <laughs> right? Saving lives, yeah. right? Wow. So first, I just want to thank you, Dr. Eric George. Thank you so much, man. What a great introduction. I noticed that you're starting to invest in senior living now as well. And obviously that section and segment of our country got hit very hard uh, with the disease. And, you know, I was wondering how much impact uh, that experience had on the investments that you're making for better se senior living facilities and care. And two, why haven't you emailed me for my check? <laughs> you are the best. <laughs> Listen, you are amazing in that you came in and figured out exactly. And I will tell you, it was COVID that really started moving our team towards looking at these senior people. And we all have senior people that we love. 
every single, all four of you guys sitting there, there's someone in your life that's senior. And it really started our team off on trying to say, how can we help these people? And I did a little research with our team and we kind of see this thing coming, Dave, as a, we call it a silver tsunami. And that is 10,000 people are turning 65 every day and people don't have a lot of savings. And these assisted livings are very expensive and home care is really expensive. And it's kind of coming to a culmination. What we want to try to do is try and I'm open to lots of suggestions, but what we're trying to do is figure out how can we make this easier for people moving forward. I, I absolutely love that, and I agree with you. I think that the silver tsunami is coming. And by the way, the title of the book is so appropriate. We dropped the me mentality. I think of the analogy of the hand, you as a hand surgeon, each finger being you know useful in and of itself, but together, right, very useful. Who are some of the types of individuals that you're bringing in as advisors or as team members? You know, you ask Dave and others like him that are able to help us identify these are the things that we need to do to help people as they get older. What we did is we found four criteria that we knew people were looking for when it became time to figure out they need some help. Security and safety, communication and engagement, learning and contributions, health and wellness. So once we figured out those four things that people were looking for, we then started talking to the IT people. The Google people talked to us. We talked to some of the Apple experts. We're trying to find some type of technical advantages that you could not necessarily put someone in a nursing home or put them in an assisted living, or even if they are in assisted living, a camera is available for their questions. You know, some of the things are many just an issue, a little bit of health. Healthcare, as you guys know, are the slowest to integrate newer technologies. And, and we haven't joined those forces yet. But I want people like your all's minds to help us decide what would be the best way to integrate that because we're going to need it. You're literally changing humanity every single day you're serving, and that is just so important. And I love the book where you write and you talk about ditch the me mindset, because anything great, we have to really remove the lens of I or me. So to, to all of us that are here, anyone that's listening, what would you say is that first step to really opening up and having that collaboration so that you can make a greater impact in the world? Quote our friend there, Dave, and that is ask for help. And I'll tell you, he taught me that, meaning I'm not gonna sit here and tell you right now, Dr. George knows everything about what a senior person's gonna need in the future. So the first thing that I found is when I open my arms and say, listen guys, these elderly can't afford 6,000 a month. A lot of people only have $150,000 in savings is the average. They're 65 and they're starting to have problems. And if you're spending 6,000 a month and that's your average savings for the patient's population today, I mean, you're gonna really, it's gonna be two years and you're out. So we have to figure out a way to make this so they can either stay home in place or at the assisted living, have more technology and less demands on them. Dr. George, you do so many great things, yeah. right? You're an entrepreneur, you're a venture capitalist, you're a doctor. Right? And you're talking about all these things and how you're helping the world, but how do you help yourself doing all these things? How are you taking balance from work, 
for your mind, for your family? What are you doing that some of the entrepreneurs that are doing different things and they're diverse and, and multitasking, what tips can you give them? What kind of gives me the juice? And I think that's your question is when you can really see some of the things that we implement really help someone. And in other words, there's no better feeling than when someone has shattered their wrist and you can fix them and they've been through therapy and they come back and that lady has baked you her cake that she hadn't baked for a year because now she can use her arms again. And in this silver tsunami, what I found is these people are so appreciative of anything. I mean, a simple Nest camera in their family room or hooking their little Google Home to remind them to take their pills. That gives my heart great strength. Mm -hmm. And just a few of those kind of things is all I need for the next day. My dear friend, uh, a philanthropist, humanitarian, and an extraordinary entrepreneur, compassionate capitalist, nonetheless. My friend, I wish I could see you more often. I feel like the elderly, I don't get to see you enough. Uh, not to Jewish guilt you, but I love you. Thank you for joining us. I gotta come see you guys. Let me tell you, I'm honored to be here. Let me give you guys the big hugs. <laughs> That's what Office Thank Hour you, is about. Thank you. you know, it's what you say all the time, Dave, that you, tomorrow starts today. I know you shut your, your day down essentially at 9.30 p.m. Mentally, you're already into tomorrow. And, and that's what he's doing, right? There, it's so often we're reactive with, where something happens with grandmom or grandpop and, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden it's, it's just a scramble to figure it out. He's on to something, utilizing technology mm -hmm. so that we can prepare today for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Great person, great human being, great message. You're kind of guy. Because, yeah, Mike, dude, great energy. <laughs> you were getting emotional. I love it. It was great. I'm excited to hear from our next guest, Apollo Ono, former U.S. Olympic champion and one of the most decorated U.S. male athletes of all time. Apollo Ono, welcome to Office Hours. No, oh, thanks. Good to see you again, Dave. Hi, everybody. I have to start with something that I learned when I met you and we've seen throughout this program. I think you illustrate the spirit of excellence. And I want to start with, was this born into you, this mm -hmm. desire that you must be what you can be? Was it a combination of genetics and just uh, environment? Or was it just simply people pushed you and you learned it along the way? Where on that spectrum do you feel the spirit of excellence, this desire that you must be what you can be? Because you exemplify it more than any other athlete I literally have ever been around. Early stage of my career, it wasn't driven out of trying to be or or trying to have that excellence mentality. It was really out of pure obsessed, you know, just being obsessed and also like a significant fear of failure, right? So psychologically, you know, I operated in a realm where I didn't want to deal with the failure component or what that looked like in terms of my, you know, perception of disappointment. And so that allowed me on the positive side to really lean on the levers of extreme training, uh, mental preparation and this kind of attitude that kept me up at late at night and up very early in the morning to really just remain committed over long durations of time where my mentality was always that I was always behind schedule. I was always the underdog, even though I was winning consistently or I was able to do those things. And so that that allowed me, um, as some athletes would say, you know, train as if you are dead broke, right? Um, not as if you have a tremendous amount of resources or or backstop. But let's talk role models. Surely while you're building yourself up and getting ready and prepared to compete, and I love that you're like, look, you know, you gotta compete like 
like your paycheck depends on it. Like you, this is for survival mode. I get that mindset, but who were some of your role models that you were chasing or looking up to early on before you started winning? Overall, I think in terms of like life mentorship was really always my father. You know, my father is one of those, just to give you some background and context, he's one of those immigrant stories, uh, flew from Japan to the US when he was 17 years old, didn't have a dollar to his name, didn't speak a word of English, and he struggled. And his definition of the Americana dream was one that he just was seeking to be able to stand on his own two feet and survive, and then eventually thrive. And so that hard work and dedication and sacrifice and overall, just the fundamental work ethic was ingrained in me at a very early age, which I saw by example from my dad. No matter which career path that we're in, no matter which trajectory that we're headed in life, we have this ability to perceive specific things in our life as either problems, obstacles, challenges, and then turning them into opportunities. And that's what my dad has shown me inherently um, through example his entire life. Apollo, no one can argue that you're incredibly motivated, disciplined, that's how you got to where you are. But I wanna know those moments and those mornings when you woke up and you were just so tired and fatigued from training and getting up, how did you get up? How did you keep going even when your body couldn't do it? There's times when, when you're an entrepreneur or you're working in a certain career path or relationship, whatever that challenge is, it, it's tiring, right? And we're all human. So we have these emotional traits where A, feel like we want to either give up or we don't really feel as motivated or hungry, right? It's easy when you're like pulled and you're like inspired and you're like all jacked up and you're and you're hungry and you, and you see the progress. Like that's the easy part, right? Because it's your fire is burning bright. But what do you do when the curtain is closed and you don't have the confidence? And I've had those. And what I've always done is to be able to zoom out. And zooming out has really helped me to see the overall landscape and picture and say, Apollo, what is your true north? What is your reasoning for beginning on this path in the first place? Remaining committed to that particular trajectory or plan or goal that I'm actually seeking and then really trusting in the process. I'm interested to know what are some of the skill sets that you developed as one of the most decorated athletes in, in the world um, that now help you? Is it tenacity, discipline, mm. some of the other things that have transferred over to make you so successful now? So I, I think about this in terms of what I call the five golden principles. And so I, you know, I've been writing a book about this over the past two years. And first being gratitude, the second being giving, the third being grit, the fourth being gearing up or leveling up your own expectations, and the fifth being getting into action. And so I can go into detail with all, across all of those. You know, Dave and I know the power of gratitude, I'm sure all of you do. Um, we all understand the power of giving, um, whether that's through knowledge, time, resources, and also making sure that you're giving yourself uh, the best possible chance, because I think inherently in all of us is a self-sabotaging mechanism that exists. And for us to override that hardwiring is really critical piece. Grit is self-explanatory, right? Every path and every road is never meant to be easy. Um, but going through that process over the prize is a really powerful component of our life experience. And the fourth is if you, if you really seek change and you want transformation and you're seeking reinvention, you and yourself, like the conversation you inherently have with yourself um, this is what I bring with me from the uh, from the Olympic days is having this transparent, open conversation and saying, Apollo, like I accept you for being imperfect and making mistakes and and being less than. And that's OK. But I don't accept having to stick in that same spot. I seek a path to continuously improve. And that means leveling up my own expectations of what I am feasible and possible to do. And the last is 
going and getting after it, like going and trying it, learning how to fail fast and then getting up back again and starting over. So I've never been one to be afraid of risk. I've always been one to kind of try things that are new and maybe not in my wheelhouse. And I think a lot of us suffer from paralysis by by perfectionism and paralysis by analysis. And there comes a time when we have to go out there and measure. We have to go see what it's like, um, whether it's in the way that we communicate financially and our own financial metrics and testing and measuring those things or our physical goals or our personal and mental and relationship goals. So they're all related to the same thing. Those five golden principles to me are the fundamental tools. Absolutely incredible conversation. Number one on the podium, but more importantly, number one in our hearts, Apollo Ono. Thank you so much for joining us on Office Hours. Thanks, Apollo. Thank you, you, Apollo. Thanks, guys. Great to see you, man. Thank you. He has so much tenacity. He's hungry. He's motivated. He's inspirational. Mm -hmm. Has a great haircut. Has a great great, I wish I had that hair. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) As aware as he was of his father, which was the foundation, and I agree with Jason, incredibly powerful. That resonated. That translated into his incredible self-awareness mm-hmm. which was which was clear when he talked about his identity as an Olympic athlete and one of the most decorated athletes in um, in the country uh, but his identity now and how he's transitioned that into he clearly uses that as a platform but now he recognizes the new identity and so many people are not aware of it and so many people like you never get to the end of a book by reading the same chapter over and over and over again. He closed that chapter, he uses it and everything that was part of it to move it on and to scale himself to everything he's doing now. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really powerful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And really touching upon ownership. You know, so many of us, we wait for other people to give us permission to be great, to tap into our potential. And him really talking about taking ownership of your unique skill, your talent, going forward, even if you make a mistake, breaking that perfectionist mindset. It doesn't matter. Just take ownership and move forward. You've heard some amazing guests this episode. Now let's hear the takeaway of the day from Jason Waller, host of the True Underdog Podcast. I'm Jason Waller with your takeaway of the day. There are no rewards in business if you're not willing to take risks. Remember, scared money makes no money. And having the confidence to bet on yourself in the long run will lead you to the results that you desire. I'm excited to hear from our next guest, Mike Krilivsky, CEO and founder of Creatify. Mike, you are in the cutting edge of business. You create and teach how to monetize NFTs. And I have no idea about NFTs. I'm trying to figure out about NFTs. First of all, what is an NFT and why should I care? You just stole my question, by the way. (laughs) Again? <laughs> yes. Great minds think alike. Welcome to the future, everyone. Right here, we're in a very important time. This is the, the, the time of abundance, the time where we have the ability to empower people straight from our fingertips using technology and making the world a better place. NFT means non-fungible token. And what that is exactly is the ability to, to monetize, to tokenize, Um, essentially anything worth value. If you had a digital art painting, piece of music, video, a physical product, a piece of real estate, a copyrighted trademark, you can turn that into an NFT, a non-fungible token, have it published on the blockchain, and then go hang on to it or sell it. And sometimes they go up in value, sometimes they go down, but it's, it's truly a revolutionary piece of technology that'll that'll help us for decades to come. Mike, do we, do you get duplicates of that? Like if, I said, hey, make a non-fungible, say that again? Fungible. Fungible. Have some fun. <laughs> here's, the, here's the problem, Mike. 
I, I also don't understand what it is, but I want to learn. I want to learn because I know it's part of the future. So if I don't understand and David doesn't understand, that's half of us. You're doing the justice of sharing that information. So if I were to create this thing here as an NFT, does that mean we duplicate, make more? Or? Let me give you a little example and we'll, we'll go to something even more digestible. So. Um, you know, just to give a little of my background, I'm a serial entrepreneur and investor, Stanford StartX alum, Stanford Blockchain Society. The last company, you know, we built up a million users, had famous name brands like Kiss, Black Eyed Peas, Will I Am, uh, Netflix, T-Mobile, and empowered the creators of the world with the ability to make more money online. And this was an amazing venture. Um, people created over 100 million products with their patented technology. And one of the main, uh, you know, flaws and issues we had is that People would take some IP, like an image of, you know, we'll say Mickey Mouse from Disney, put it on a T-shirt and try to sell it online without Disney's permission. As we all know, that's a big no-no. In 2016, we started, you know, jumping on that blockchain bandwagon and building, um, authenticating images on the blockchain. So that way there would be like one source of truth. You know, what that one image had an image owner and no one else can use that image. And essentially, that was the early version of NFTs five years ago. That's amazing. So, Mike, clearly you're a trendsetter. You are a thousand steps into the future. And with that always comes the naysayers, right? The people that say, what are you doing? You're crazy. That's not going to work. Don't do that. You're going to waste your money. So how do you stay focused and what I like to call get rid of the monkey chatter that's possibly around you? Any leader needs to have that quality. And, you know, in the beginning, a lot of people said, oh, you're, you know, you're going to create another NFT marketplace. There's already a hundred of them. And, you know, I actually took this feedback to heart and I said, you know what? They're right. You know, I need to solve some of the bigger problems in the NFT space that everyone can, that everyone can utilize the masses, these companies that already exist. And so we did. So we looked at the NFT space and they said, wow, you know, what's the biggest problem you're having, you know, artist A and, and musician B with NFTs? And they're like, oh, well, it cost me $200 to mint an NFT on this platform. And then I couldn't even find my NFT. The experience was so bad. And I said, wow, why don't we build a solution where minting and creating an NFT costs nothing? And it's just with one click. And then we interviewed all the buyers of NFTs. And they, these were these like super crypto nerds that, you know, are, are friends of mine and in, in my circles and stuff. But I said, what about, you know, Tracy down the street, Joe Schmo? How come they're not buying NFTs? And then uh, our research showed that you needed a crypto wallet. Now, a crypto wallet takes a few steps, a bit of knowledge. There's a learning curve. And then, you know, people have historically had their crypto wallets stolen, their crypto wallet keys like missing. And, you know, a lot of people don't trust it. So we're like, why don't we take a page out of Coinbase's book and make it just simple to sign up with no wallet needed? We'll manage the wallet. We'll be the custodian for the average Joe to sign up with their credit card or bank account and slam dunk this thing. Mike, I absolutely love that. And, and you're speaking my language. You know that, Dave, and we've talked about it. I, I leaned into this heavily months ago and I, and I admittedly knew nothing about it. And, and now I try to consume as much as I can because like you, I see the future in NFTs. I see the future in technology. You told us about where we are now and what the potential is, but give us, you're taking us into the future here. What is, you know, what's the potential? Where are we a year, three years, five years from now with NFTs? Come, come, <laughs> come with me. So at the Miami Bitcoin conference for whoever was there, 
It was an amazing time. I think it was the largest crypto conference of all time. And this was a few months ago. You know, I started uh, saying a very, um, you know, what seemed to be outrageous future prediction, um, which people were kind of being the naysayers, by the way. And I was saying, hey, NFTs are going to be way larger than all of cryptocurrency. And people are like, no, get out of here. That's stupid. You're crazy. And you know, this isn't the first time people have said this to me in my life. And then by the end of Miami Bitcoin conference, about five, six days, seven days later, everyone was jumping on my bandwagon and saying, oh my God, you're right. Like cryptocurrencies at like 1.6 to trillion market cap and NFTs could be of anything of value, which is literally a hundred trillion dollar market plus. Creatify, create your NFTs, distribute, monetize and create an instant license that can give you a perpetual annuity. Mike, thank you so much for joining us here on Office Hours. Thank you, Mike. Thank Thanks, you, Mike. Mike. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. God, a whole new world. Well, yeah, mind it's blown. It's here. I mean, that's why when we, we talk about it, Dave, that's why, you know, I leaned into it. That's why you see so many of these, these people that are often the trendsetters that are leaning into things before most mm -hmm. people know that they even exist, leaning into NFTs. The technology is incredible, not just for the Picassos, the trading that he talked about, but the business use. It's like, well, he didn't even get into all of that, but every industry will be affected and, and the potential is incredible. And, and this guy's, I mean, he's making it clear he's at the leader, leader of the pack there. Yeah, he, he mentioned the marketing and I know what he's talking about because we do a lot of digital marketing. I'm wondering, is there a huge play? And I know I personally, my business be interested, so I know a lot of other business be interested in being able to market and target certain mm -hmm. clients and customers through that, which is a huge revenue stream for, you know, that place. Let's go to this week's Executive Spotlight. Each week, we'll be interviewing the top entrepreneurs and executives, sharing their personal playbook to success and the lessons they've learned along the way. Derek Moneyberg is a world-renowned investor, entrepreneur, and wealth coach. In 2020 alone, he made over $10 million investing in distressed equities. He taught his investment and entrepreneurial insights to thousands, and several members of his elite Moneyberg Mastermind Network have already made over a million dollars themselves. Derek's coaching is a passionate hobby that he uses as a feeder mechanism to bring bright and ambitious individuals into his network and inner circle. Having graduated from the prestigious University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Derek's coaching style is celebrated for his ability to combine top honors academic knowledge with pragmatic, no-nonsense, money-making advice. Welcome Derek Moneyberg to Office Hours. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. It's so interesting because I've noticed this, you know, I mentor people as well, but there's a difference between mentors, coaches, and teachers. I always say a mentor is someone that's been there, done that, gives directions on how to get there. A coach is someone that brings the best out of you, but may not even be there. And sure. a teacher is someone that can explain what someone else has done so you can learn from it. Now, you're one of the most world-renowned wealth coaches. Which one do you consider yourself, and what's the difference between what you do and what this huge sea of coaches, mentors, and trainers that exist out there, what's the difference of the value that you bring? A lot of people out there that are pretending they're doing something on the internet or are halfway teachers. Right. <laughs> and you know, a lot of them haven't even done what they said that they've done or did it at a rather you know, a lower level than 
you know, had less experience and less success in life than you have or than I've been able to create for myself or for some of my clients. Uh, I, I think of myself as a mentor more than anything. I'm not a cheerleader. But I want to work with people that are they're already motivated, they're already serious, and, um, you know, and, and help them understand some of the things that, that I learned. I spent nine years in university. The clinical professor, say, from university. I learned a lot more from people that did things than people that wrote a book about something that they never really did themselves, you know? And I try to be that person for other people. Like, what are the, what are the pragmatic, no-nonsense things that help me get real-world results consistently? And you don't try to help everyone. One of the things I like about what you do, Derek, is that, you know, there's a lot of people that prey on what I call the wantrepreneurs, you know, the guys that aren't quite there yet. And for me, I provide just the litany. In fact, everything I provide is free. It's those people that want more intimate relations with me in order to facilitate a kind of a sideline mentor or coach, an audible caller for them maybe, or someone that can give the introductions and other things that can catapult them to a different place or a different space. Who, who are you looking to be your client? The majority of my clients, well over half, are already college educated. A lot of them went to graduate school. They have professional degrees, or they already are business owners or sold a company and things of that nature. You know, they, they might be someone who never went, never spent a day in college, but they were a military person or they were, or they were uh, a talented tradesperson or an athlete or they did something at a, at a you know, moderate or high level already that they've already come with their own motivation, their own discipline, their own work ethic. And you know, they're, they're serious and motivated about having financial results. You know, you're building quite a brand yourself. You have a tremendous following, but yet you're not an extreme extrovert. You're an intellect. Uh, you work extremely hard and I think people like you that I've gone to school with, you know, if I told them 10 years ago, oh yeah, you'll be an influencer with a big following on the internet, you would have laughed at me and said, are you kidding? But yet it's a critical component of what you do. And when I talk to you and learn from you, I think about frequency. In this show, Office Hours, is a great display. It's kind of like a P.T. Barnum, Barnum Bailey circus of frequencies of successful people with a spirit of excellence, with the desire that they must be what they can be. But there's an obvious difference in our personalities, you and I, that the way that we deal things, but yet we both have different followings. We speak to a different audience, a different spectrum. And I think it's really important, you know, how comfortable and when did you become comfortable in your own frequency, like Dr. Pimple Popper, for example, you know, it disgusts me. But yet, you know, she has more uh, YouTube subscribers than both of us combined in a TV show about popping pimples. But there's a whole spectrum of people that love that stuff, or maybe they hate it but love to watch it because <laughs> they love to watch what they damn hate. I find it really interesting that introverts like yourself, intellectual practitioners like yourself, that probably never would have dreamed of being on TV shows and doing videos, you know, you're a real personality to a certain spectrum. How does that feel, and is it something that you have learned to be comfortable with? I'm a natural introvert. Most of my clients are natural introverts. I'd rather be alone than with the wrong people. I love to be around the right people. I love to be around the right people. I'm contributing to them, and they're contributing to me, and it's mutually beneficial. But I'd be delighted to be alone rather than around people that I didn't necessarily care for or that it wasn't going somewhere, you know? And, and that said, you know, a lot of my clients are that way. They, they, I value freedom more than I valued, you know, attention or publicity. I never cared about having a big following or having millions of followers on the internet. There was, there was never a goal of mine ever in my life. It's something that kind of happened. Uh, mostly organically, with very little effort, actually. You know, the goal for me was to have financial freedom, to live your life the way that you want to, to, to not have to do my hair, to not have to... I met three U.S. presidents wearing jeans. I'm on your show with jeans, you know? I love it. Um, somebody else would dress up and, you know, behave differently in a, in a way that might be incongruent. One other thing. So you've been able to amass 
great wealth. And it's different than being rich. You amass wealth. And I see wealth as a sustainable ability, right? One of the things, I was very rich when I was young, but I wasn't wealthy because I couldn't sustain it. I didn't understand what I do. And I needed a Derek Moneyberg in my life uh, because I was financially successful, what other people would call rich, but I had no idea how to maintain and grow wealth, utilize Einstein's rule of 72 of compound interest. What piece of advice do you have for people to grow and to maintain their wealth, not to get rich? Don't worry about get rich quick, but do worry about get rich. And to your point of wealth versus rich, uh, if you're spending money as, as quick as you're making it, then you're not saving. If you're spending money faster than you're making it, you're really making your life worse, you know? You, you have to live within your means, but that doesn't mean live in poverty or mediocrity, it's, you know, get bigger means. Get, get the education, get the, get the coaches, get the mentoring, and put in the effort to, to expand your means to have whatever you want in your life. You did that, I've done that. I grew up poor as hell. I, mean, I didn't have anything growing up. My parents didn't give me a penny for college. I took that responsibility upon myself to build a life that I wanted. I wasn't happy with the life that I had, so I built a life that I liked a lot more. I think that's a lifestyle choice. I think people that don't do that, it's a lifestyle choice. Half people are gonna be below the 50th percentile in anything they do. And a lot of that's a lifestyle choice. If you're in a first world country and have the opportunities that people have here, you could choose to do a lot better. You could choose to be rather wealthy if you put in the work. What's the number one piece of financial advice that you give? Let's say we're to teach in a high school financial literacy course. You know, for me, I tell people all the time, spend a minimum of an hour a day on your health. And like, that's not financial advice. I said, it absolutely is. Because if you're not healthy, no matter how rich you are. What's the best piece of advice that you give to young people that are trying to learn financial literacy? There's not enough years in your life to learn everything by yourself. If you, if you learn from your own mistakes instead of learning from other people's mistakes, you, you wasted a lot of time that you could have been compounding those gains, and you, you set yourself up for a lot of misery. I, I have a lot of friends that were you know, professional boxers or UFC guys or NFL, and you know, I, I never seen a guy holding a, a trophy above his head, and the universal symbol of victory, who didn't have a great coach or a good mentor. I've never seen that. You ever see that? Never, and that's why I will tell everyone that Derek and I cannot pay your state taxes. We can't pay your federal tax, but we certainly can pay your dummy tax. Derek Moneyberg, world-renowned wealth coach. Thank you so much for joining me, Dave Meltzer, here on Office. Thanks for having me, Dave. Appreciate awesome it. Awesome job. Now, a quick word from our JA Impact honoree partner, presented by Screwball Peanut Butter Whiskey. Junior Achievement Worldwide prepares young people for employment and entrepreneurship, delivering hands-on experiential learning and work readiness, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. The recipient of the JA Impact Honoree is selected based on their mission-driven values and had the opportunity to align with Junior Achievement Worldwide through their 100 million-plus alumni network. Driving awareness to their brand through Junior Achievement's millions of entrepreneurs looking to make an impact on the world. Hi, I'm Steve Yang, co-founders of Screwball Whiskey. Dr. Eric George is a compassionate person through and through. Not only is he a life-saving surgeon, but his passion for helping those in need shine through in every aspect of his life. Thanks for all you do, Dr. George, and congrats on being this episode's Junior Achievement honoree. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Office Hours. And a special thank you to our featured co-hosts and guests for joining today's episode. 